Well, good afternoon, all of you. I uh, received a note with uh, some announcements on it, and uh, it's written on some paper that has something right up at the top. I don't know whether that's an announcement or not. It's printed. It says, Believe. With God, all things are possible. So I read that first, since it's up there. Anyway, you just received a copy of the schedule for the spring holy days. I uh, hope everything's clear there. Uh, we'll make <coughs> timely announcements as we go through about probably the next day and what's going on, but it's nice for you to plan ahead of time. So there it is. On the back table, there's a card there that we could sign and give a little note to George, if you please. Uh, he's doing, I think, quite a bit better than he was at home. Uh, they give him food more to fit his condition than he ate at home. It's very difficult for him to regulate things properly uh, when he's at home. And uh, in his insulin as well, he kind of played with it quite a bit. He's probably listening. That's okay. Uh, but they're regulating it better, and he's feeling better as a result overall. <coughs> also, there's a sign-up sheet uh, for side dishes for the dinner on the back table. That's the dinner for Thursday the 6th. And I don't know whether you've noticed or not, but I certainly have. Uh, look at how the floor shines. That's uh, beautiful. Uh, there was an awful lot of sand in here to start with. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> we track a lot in, and then it comes from in around the doors, and there's even a couple of bird holes up here that a little bit comes in. We need to get that done before they start nesting on us again. But uh, even the chairs that we have back for potluck got all nice and cleaned. Uh, they were beginning to get <clears throat> pretty spotty, I had noticed, from spilled food and so on. So those have all been cleaned up, and the hall made really nice for the spring holy days. So uh, I do appreciate very deeply what everybody has done to get things ready. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into it from organizing and cleaning and planning and everything so that we can have everything go smoothly, which I anticipate will happen. So thank you for all of those who have helped in any form or fashion to get things ready for these days that are coming up. There's a couple of extras of these. This is an extra. I'll leave right here if somebody else needs another one. I have my own at home. <clears throat> and speaking of which, uh, Monday evening is Passover. Uh, the sun goes down at 7.56 in Cedar City, maybe a minute or so uh, before that down here. But um, we want to get started by 8. Uh, we'll, I'll try to get going about 8. So, as always, it's nice if we can be in here at least 15 minutes ahead of time and get settled and get quiet and get ready, because it is a very solemn evening, a very solemn service, 
and uh, we all understand we're not. It's not a night for fellowship and visiting and just regular small talk. It's a time to be very sober, uh, and we'll get into some of that today. In fact, uh, got a couple of questions for you <coughs> to begin this. Uh, who am I? And the other one is, who is God? We'll examine uh, both of those today in the sermon so that we have a hopefully better perspective going into the Passover Monday night uh, as to what we are to do. And the first scripture I want to go to is Exodus 12. Uh, I could go back to 7. I'll just mention it in passing that in chapter 7 there, he's starting through <clears throat> the terrible plagues of Egypt, which wound up absolutely destroying the Egyptian empire. Uh, when you go through all the things that they went through, there's not much left. And uh, much of what was left got destroyed in the Red Sea. So uh, God took them apart piece by piece. And it says there in Exodus 7, I forget the exact verse, I just noticed it, that in, the Egyptians will know that I am God. And that was one of the first questions I asked. Who is God? Now, all through the Bible, you'll find passages such as that. You'll run across them here and there. They will know that I am the Eternal. I mention it more in conjunction, I guess, with Ezekiel than any other book because it's just over and over and over in there that when God brings down what He's going to bring down, that they will know who I am. Uh, says it with His treasures there in Isaiah 45 as well. But those treasures will be used to show the people from the east to the west, all around the earth, that He is God. Now, that's the beginning point of any relationship between God and man, is who's who? Who am I? Who are you? And when people meet for the first time, those are the questions they start asking. Who are you? Where did you come from? Where did you grow up? What do you do for a living? You know, we just have little questions to get acquainted. We want to know who we are. And God is going to make sure that a world who does not know Him at all knows who He is. That's the first thing that has to occur. Now, in conjunction with that, and we'll hear more about it in that sense, uh, here in chapter 12 of <coughs> Exodus, it's beginning to talk about the Passover itself and how this first month that we're in now is the first month of the year to you. In verse 3, Speak you to all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month shall you take, uh, they take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Now this is the eleventh, I'm a day late. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, we all knew this one. I don't know whether we reviewed it or thought about it. But they were to take this lamb on the 10th day. The Passover is not until the 14th. So this is four days ahead of time. 
Now, what are they to do with it? Uh, if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. So they were, as we see up in, uh, oh, where is it, about verse 10. It says, if there's anything remaining of it, you're to burn it up with fire. Now, in this particular Passover, they weren't even going to be there in the morning. Uh, they would be gone shortly after midnight, but that is part of the instruction, is that it all be eaten. Uh, this ultimately represents the sacrifice of Christ. And he is to be used entirely, just as his lamb was to be eaten in its entirety. Uh, every part of Christ, everything about Christ, we are to use. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up, keep it uh, pinned up nearby, uh, until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts on the upper door, Post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they eat it in that night, baked with fire, uh, broiled, not cooked in any other way, and with unleavened bread. Not to eat it raw or boiled, but roast with fire. Head, legs, and even the pertinence, the entrails were to remain in it. Now, this lamb pictures Christ, and as a result, it has to be without blemish, because he was without blemish. It can't have injuries or uh, birth defects or anything of that kind. They were to take it four days ahead of time, examine it very closely to be sure that it was appropriate for this that there was nothing wrong with it, just as there was nothing wrong with Christ. Now, the blood, and that's where the life is, was to be put on your doorposts, your lantern. Now, what did that represent? Because God said that he was going to go through and kill every firstborn of man and animal that did not have that blood on the doorpost. So every Israelite family would lose a child that night if that blood was not there. So what did that blood mean? It meant protection. It meant that there was something bigger than you that could protect you from harm. It couldn't have couldn't protect the Mitzrayimites or Egyptians because they wouldn't have it on their doorposts. So they were without protection, without help, without anything at all. And when midnight came, they lost the firstborn of every family. 
And there was wailing and weeping and screaming and all kinds of anguish going on throughout their entire empire. But where Israel was, there was peace, there was safety, there was protection, and none of them lost a child or a firstborn unless they didn't put the blood on. And I am pretty sure they all did. You would think that they would have. So, who is important here? Was it the Israelites? Or was it the one doing the protecting? Because without the protection, you had nothing, and you were going to suffer a great loss. So who's greater? The people or the one who protected them? That's a thought to bear in mind now, because it's established right here, and we'll see it more and more as we go on through. Now let's go from there to 1 Corinthians 11. We read this during the Passover service because it gives us quite a bit of instruction about the Passover. Now what these Corinthians had done was really kind of contrary to what God wanted going on. And Paul had to get after them about it because they were self-seeking and trying to take care of themselves. And self-centeredness is not what God wants from us. He says up here in verse 10 that there will be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So there will be those who keep things properly, uh, and according to the right teaching and doctrine, and then those who would have their own ideas. So he gives some instruction. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Meaning, of course, that they would not eat a meal like Christ did with the disciples that last time before he was killed. You're not to do that anymore. Now, he did it for a very special reason with his disciples. But Paul is telling us right here, that isn't what you're coming together for. Well, why? Because if you have a regular dinner, sit down, you have all the food and wine and various things, it's a social gathering is what it amounts to, and it tends to lose that seriousness, that reverence that it ought to have, because you're just visiting normally. Now, Christ changed things there himself. They had the meal according to the way it had always been done. You take the lamb, you kill it, you eat it. And they had prepared and done that very thing. But when it was over, remember, he instituted the bread and the wine, and he instituted the foot washing. And he was therefore making a change in the way that things were done. Because no more was that lamb that you took on the tent the important part of it, but he was and became the lamb. And he was slaughtered the very next day. But they observed it the night before. And the symbols were changed the night before. 
So now our protection comes directly from Him, not from blood on a doorpost, but from God in heaven and Jesus Christ at His right hand. That's where it comes from now. So He changed those symbols. And Paul made a point of that here. Uh, that you're not to have the Lord's Supper, as he had it that night. For in eating, everyone takes before others his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. He says it can be done all kinds of different ways. Somebody might decide to drink their dinner. Somebody might eat it and have alcohol with it. And he says, this is not the point this night. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Have your meal before you come to Passover. Or despise you the church of God and shame them that have not. Now, people tended not to be generous as they should be, but they didn't have a potluck, per se, apparently. Uh, each brought his own and each ate his own. And if somebody was poor, they didn't get any. And somebody that had a lot, had a lot. That's the way the Corinthians got this thing going. And it didn't reflect God at all. <clears throat> what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? No, I don't praise you. For I have received of the eternal that which also I deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Not a lamb's body, his body. Do in remembrance of me. And this, after the same manner, he took the cup when he had, after he had eaten, saying, This cup is the New Testament. In my blood, this do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Some people think they can take it regularly, once a week or ever, once a month or whatever. But, as often as you take it, is clearly delineated in Scripture as being Passover night. Every year, do it this way. He's establishing something here. Uh, this is You're not to bring your food and eat that night. Do that at home. You're here to have the body and the blood of Christ. Uh, this, or you do show the Lord's death till he come. So doing it this way is the way we're supposed to do it till he comes back. Now he says then, wherefore over, or wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So if we come there and take it in a wrong attitude, a wrong manner, a wrong way, which they were doing, uh, then we're guilty of killing him. Murder of God. So it's important <laughs> that we be not guilty of that. Now, we are in other ways with daily sin, but in particular that night, uh, he's saying, you're killing him instead of bringing him back. <coughs> Excuse me. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. He doesn't say, if you're unworthy, 
don't take it. He says, examine yourself and then take it. I've seen people sometimes in the past, years ago, decades ago, wherever, and whenever, come to me and say, well, I don't think I should take the Passover this year because I've not been what I ought to be and I'm not what I ought to be and I'm unworthy to take it. Well, now, everybody is unworthy of the blood and the bread of Christ. Nobody is worthy of it. So what's this talking about then? If we sin at all, we're worthy of death, right? And his life is worth more than all of ours, so we're all unworthy of it. That's not what he's trying to establish here. Take it worthily. And he does say, let a man examine himself. So you're supposed to examine yourself. And then do take it. You may be unworthy to take it, but you need it. So do a self-examination and realize you're not what you ought to be and that you need his blood and then take it because you need it. You have to have it. If you're to live eternally and immortally in the kingdom of God, you can't get there without him. Remember he said, I'm the door, I'm the only door. You've got to come through me. So therefore, if you want eternal life, you better get things in order so that the worthiness and what he means here is there. Now, the word examine here means to test, to try, and to discern. So when you examine yourself, you check yourself, you test yourself, you go over your life, you come to understand who you are and what you are before you take that. Now I'm going to keep my finger here and turn to Jeremiah 17.9, which you can quote to me. You know it quite well. God is trying the heart, and he says the heart is deceitful above all things. It's the most deceitful thing there is, the human heart. And desperately wicked, not a little wicked, but desperately so. Who can know it? We can't even know ourselves completely. We do things sometimes thinking we have the right motivation from God, and yet there is always great danger of self-deception there, and that we're doing something that is in and of itself good, but we're doing it for selfish reasons, so that we can pat ourselves on the back and be proud, so that others will pat us on the back and tell us how wonderful we are for being such a good servant. So self-righteousness and the things we do is always right at the edge, if not right in the middle of it. We do things for self-aggrandizement. We do things to please ourselves and hopefully to please others so that they like us too. The self is always at the center of everything we 
naturally, humanly do, in one way or another. Others may receive great benefit, but if you're self-righteous about it, it doesn't give you any benefit. In fact, it works against you greatly. So we have to examine our own motives constantly to say, why did I do that? Did I say something nice to somebody so that they would feel good about me? Or was it really about them? I, the eternal, search the heart. Now, if God himself, who knows everything and sees everything, searches our hearts, he's always concerned about our motivation. In what way is it truly loving the other person, and what, how often is it doing something for them so that it comes back nice to us? And he ponders that. I search the heart, try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. So, he constantly examines our motivations. Is our motivation from him, through his spirit, in outgoing concern and love for others, or somewhere does it get twisted and we want credit, we want praise, we want uh, promotion, we want whatever it is we might want. And all too often, it comes back wrong. Let's see that uh, in Luke 18. Luke 18. This is a story about uh, the Pharisee and the publican and us. Luke 18 and verse 10. Let's pick it up. Well, in verse 8, he asked if he will find faith on the earth. And then he spoke this parable to certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on others, despised others. They had come to the point in their religious life where they thought they were okay. They thought they, they looked at the things they did and they did a lot of good works. They were good servants, maybe. They had a pretty high opinion of themselves because they thought they did good. Now, God had a very, very different uh, view. Two men went up to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed this way with himself. God, uh, with himself, I'm having trouble my left eye is watering, uh, with himself, God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican down here. I just thank you that I'm, I'm doing things good. I always do things right. I'm, I'm just okay. Full of pride, full of self. 
the things that he did for others, he did really for self-aggrandizement. So he could think well of himself. It's really easy to get this way. You know, our parents teach it to us when we're little kids, and it's really popular in our society today. You're the best. You're the most wonderful kid there is. Uh, you do things right. Um, you won a blue ribbon or a red ribbon or whatever color is popular. And we want to be sure that everybody who participates, they don't have to win, but they get this participant trophy or ribbon or whatever, just because their body was there and they want everybody to feel so good about himself. Now, from Adam and Eve on down, has mankind, in any form, fashion, or otherwise, needed to feel good about himself? No. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the penalty of sin is death. So, mankind, from Adam and Eve on down all the way through needs to have the view of itself and himself individually that I need help because I've sinned and I'm going to die. It's just that simple. But we try to make these kids feel like they're the best thing that ever came along. We don't want to hurt their little feelings. We don't want them to feel bad about themselves in any way. Because they're such good kids. No, they're not. They're carnal. They're selfish. They're self-centered. They want their own way from the very beginning. And if we help them with that attitude, they just get worse and worse. Don't hurt their little feelings. Their, their psyche could be damaged. Baloney. That's not godly. That's not his attitude at all. If we sin and we do wrong, He chastens us. He hurts us in some fashion so that we get the point that we shouldn't be acting the way we're acting. And it's in, the, it's in a baby from the very beginning. I just had my first grandchild born two days ago. And my son said, boy, he has great lungs. Started screaming and howling and showing his anger and hate, selfishness, the minute he breathed. I want to go back where it's warm and soft. I don't want to feel this, and I don't want to feel that. And I'm just upset because things aren't just the way I want them. He didn't know how he wanted them, but they went the way he wanted them, whatever that might be. And we spend pretty much the rest of our lives discontent and frustrated because everything isn't the way we want it. And that's one of the major things a parent's responsibility is, is to teach kids that things will never be exactly the way you want them in this life. And if you think so, you've got some rude awakening coming. So they spend their first two, three, four years teaching that everything's going to be just right for you. We're going to treat everything, everything's going to be good. You get the way you want. You get to do what you want. You get to think what you want, say what you want. Because we don't want to hurt your psyche. 
so we're going to protect you and take care of you and spoil you rotten. And then they come to reality at some point where they begin to realize things aren't always going to be the way I want them. How's it worked out for you? All through your life, has everything been the way you wanted it? Not a chance. But we try to teach our kids that, and then when they aren't the way the kid wants them, the kid goes through some serious readjustment. And you feel that sometimes, huh? We have to be careful. No. They are not the best. They are not the greatest. They are not sliced bread, if you will, or the greatest thing since. They need to be taught that the way they act is often selfish and is distressing to others, no matter how they feel about it. And not to be that way. We've learned a little as we've grown older. For the most part, I think most of us try not to distress others, don't we? We, we try to act in such a way that people aren't upset and distressed. But a kid doesn't know that. And they have to be taught it. You're not supposed to distress people. Your parents or anybody else. You're to be polite. You're to be respectful. You could even say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. I know that's gone now. Nobody wants to hear that anymore, and kids will even get ridiculed sometimes for saying things like that. But it's part of learning respect. It's what it is. So from the very beginning, we come into this world, we are self-centered. And that was my grandson's problem. He was self-centered. He didn't think of anybody around him, totally unaware of anybody but him and his current frustration. Having to learn to breathe, having to learn to feel air, whatever it is that upsets them, they scream. Because they're only concerned about how they feel. And they don't even know it yet. And there are a lot of people who are 80 years old haven't discovered it yet. How they feel is the only thing that's important. <laughs> so God sits there and he ponders. What is that person's motivation? Because he has a purpose, and that purpose is that every one of those human beings that's born should become God someday and should be full of love and peace and joy and happiness and meekness and faith and love and all those things that are His Spirit. And He wants them to live forever in peace, not bothering each other. And that's why He tells us, don't you bother somebody else <coughs> and don't you be bothered by somebody else. Offended is the word He uses. Sick. Same thing. Just don't let it go there. Because it comes from self-centeredness. That's where it comes from. <coughs> Satan became very self-centered and rebelled against God. And he's been laying the same attitude on every one of us ever since. He laid it on Adam and Eve first and scored big. And he's been scoring big with the rest of us ever since. 
I stuck it. One of our friends around here, uh, a goathead, in my heel yesterday, day before. It was it was a really good one, one of those with a long, short, sharp point. Went in real nice and deep, and all oh, did that hurt. And it hurt for two or three hours afterward, just a dull ache. But all oh, did that hurt. And after I got done talking to it, I said to myself, "That was my fault. I've been blaming the goat head." No, that was my fault. Not because I hadn't swept the floor. It was my fault because I'm one of those who sinned against God from his very first breath like my grandson. And those goat heads and all of these things around here that stick us and bite us and pinch us and hurt us came as a result of being booted out of the garden and into an unkind world. And that was because of sin. Adam and Eve, and since then, every one of us has followed. So the fact that we still have foxtails and goat heads and tumbleweeds is because we're the ones that generated them in the first place. So instead of belittling the goat head, I need to say to God, I'm sorry, Father, that my sins caused you to put these things on us. It's my fault. It's not the little sticker's fault. It doesn't have a mind. It doesn't have motivations. But I do. And my motivations were just like Adam and Eve's. Adam and Eve's. I wanted what I wanted. And through life, so often, I've gone after what I wanted. To appease and please the body, the self, in any way possible. And we go through life like that, and so often we don't really care about somebody else. We just want what we want. That's why we describe our society as dog-eat-dog. Dog. You bounce over somebody going up the ladder to success and don't care if you smash them in the face as you go on by. That's just the way human life is and always has been. Now, let's go on here. <clears throat> he prayed the Pharisee thus with himself. He was thinking of self and how he felt about himself when he made the prayer. So he thanked God he wasn't like this sinner over here. See the self-centeredness in this prayer. I'm not one of these. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing far off, would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. These two men had totally different views of themselves. One was self-righteous and thought he was okay and he was doing all the good stuff, keeping the doctrines the way he ought to, and fasting, and praying, and tithing, and all the things God says to do, all right. But the problem is, he was doing it so that he could think well of himself, and just go to God and say, I know you admire me, because you have to, considering the way I am. I'm wonderful. Thank you. 
and the other one saw the contrast between himself and God and wouldn't even lift his eyes. He says, I know I'm a sinner. Oh, what am I going to do? Now, I hope that we all see ourselves as the publican saw himself, that we are full of selfishness and sin of all kinds, and we're unworthy of God. It was unworthiness this is, that this man felt. Was, I, I can't even look up at God, I'm so unworthy. Well, you know, aren't we in that position really, whether we are convinced of it ourselves or not? We all sin and come short of the glory of God. Our feelings, our emotions, our words, our actions, whatever. Or thoughts. I tell you, <clears throat> this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. If you really want exalted, you should humble yourself. Don't try to exalt yourself. But be humble as this man was and recognize your faults and how unworthy you are. Now, with that in mind, in God's judgment and assessment of it, let's go back to First or Second Corinthians 11. And I think we've emphasized this somewhat the wrong way in the past, and I want to correct that. Um... No, it's first word in eleven. What am I doing? All right, we get back here. <clears throat> let a man examine himself, verse twenty eight, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now in Exodus twelve, the lamb was taken up, and it was to represent Christ, to be a type of Christ. So it had to be without blemish. Now, we are to be a type of Christ, right? We're to be like Him. To be like He was when He walked the earth and to be like He is today. That's what everything in this book tells us. To walk as He walked, to think as He thought, to be like Him. So, that is a type. Every one of us, such as we are, are a type of Christ. And as that lamb was checked, tested, tried, we're to come before him before Passover and to be checked, tested, and tried. And that's a formal process for at least four days, from the 10th to the 14th, where we seriously think about and examine and meditate on what we are because we're supposed to be a type of Christ without blemish, without problems. And if we examine ourselves, we find we fall way short. Now, the Lamb didn't have any problems. And the Lamb is a direct type of the Christ that would come, and He had no problems. But if we examine ourselves in the same fashion, we're going to find lots of them. So we're going to come to the Passover saying, I don't deserve this. 
He was perfect, and he died for me. His shed blood was shed for me. His body was broken and beaten that I might be physically healed. And I have to recognize that I'm far from that. So if we don't feel worthy, there's a good reason for that. We aren't. But we're in deep and desperate need is what we're in. So you're supposed to try and test yourself ahead of time and be sure you don't come to the Passover like the Pharisee, but come like the publican. We come in quietly. We don't try to impress each other as we come in. We sit there. Sometimes we read a few scriptures ahead of time to be sure that our thoughts, our minds, our emotions are as they should be. That we should be coming as that publican in shame, in self-loathing, in repentance, deeply feeling a need and yet knowing that we don't come up to scratch. We lack so much being like Christ in truth that we come very humbly, very meekly to ask for His forgiveness and that of His Father. So, examining yourself ahead of time means that. To try, to test, to find your blemishes and to be sad and sorrowful and hardly able to look up. We bow our heads before Christ and the Father to pray during the Passover service. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself not discerning the Lord's body, not understanding what that body is for and what it's all about. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the eternal, that we should not be condemned with the world. What the Passover means is that the world is about to be condemned for sin. The Egyptian empire is about to lose all their firstborn. They're about to lose their animals. They're about to lose their soldiers in the Red Sea. They're about to be destroyed as an empire that never came back in power ever since. And we approach the throne of God and Christ Himself with the attitude of, I need something. I need protection. I need help. I need the blood on the doorpost, if you will. But not any more sheep blood, but the blood of Christ over us. And that's the only protection we have because the world is about to be condemned and destroyed. And if we don't have the protection and the blood of Christ over us, we're going to be destroyed along with it. That's all there is to it. So we come. And we come having tried and tested ourselves. Now, if you look the word unworthily up in the concordance and get the Greek here, the word means reverently. Irreverently or reverently. Can't say the word now. 
reverently. What does that mean? It means that we see what we are, have examined ourselves, and come up wanting and knowing we are unworthy. But we need to come to Him who is reverent. Come to Him with all worshipfulness. That is being in a worthy attitude, having discerned the Lord's body. What this is all about. What His blood and His body meant and means for us today. So we are to approach it recognizing we are not reverend, we are not worthy, we're far from it, but He is worthy. There's a scripture called, Worthy is the Lamb. And only He could open the seals, as we saw in Revelation recently. Nobody else was worthy to open them. So, what we need to see when we come to Passover, and the overall point here, is what I am compared to what He is. What I can do for myself compared to what only He can do for me. We need to have that contrast firmly in mind. Because if you come in an irreverent or attitude where, oh, here I am, Lord, I know one I'm, I'm one of yours. I'm one of the good guys. I know that you're accepting me into the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and uh, you want me in your kingdom and everything's good between us. No. We come realizing what sinners we still are. What our lacks are. And we understand that the only way we're going to be saved from that and have eternal life is through Him. He's the only one that can provide it. You can't work salvation in yourself. People have tried to do it with works. Good works are good. And they have some impact upon the reward in the kingdom. But good works will not get you into the kingdom of God. Why? Because no matter how many good works you do, you're still going to have to die for your sins. Good works don't give a penalty, but sins do. So you've got to have an intermediary to protect you, otherwise you're like the firstborn of Egypt. Dead man walking and about to fall over and die for good. So you have to approach this, as Paul is saying here, very reverently, deeply respectful, acknowledging and knowing what he is compared to what you are. And you should spend time, between now and the Passover service, sitting down and meditating and praying about this to be sure that you understand where you're headed on your own and how you can be protected and head somewhere else with his help. This is really more about him than it is about us. Yeah, we take the Passover personally because we need forgiven. But we can't forgive ourselves and accomplish anything through that eternally. We must forgive ourselves. We must forgive others. It's part of it, yes. 
But unless He forgives us, it doesn't mean a thing because He's the one that grants eternal life. And that's what we want. I won't go there again, but we just read recently, last week, uh, the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And I think I pointed out even then last week the contrast between the two. Because he says just above that that the Spirit and the flesh fight against each other. And that's why we have a challenge and a continual difficulty. Things are not as we want them. Things are not as God wants them. He wants us to be trees of joy and peace and happiness and love and meekness. We want to be full of sin and selfishness and pleasing the self for the moment. That's what we're all about. So there's a conflict there, constantly. Living as a human being is a difficult time. Don't you teach your kids life isn't going to be difficult. But you're lying to them. It's going to be difficult. And they need to face difficulties and challenges and punishments if they act carnally and selfishly. Because they need to learn that I'm not supposed to act that way and this is what happens when I do. They need to learn that from birth on. doesn't mean you don't love them. You do. But you want them to be ready to face the vicissitudes of life just like God is teaching us about the vicissitudes of life and how we can be delivered from it. Because there's only one way. Now I'm going back to Psalms 1. The questions on the table are, who am I and who is God? And that's important to discern before Passover. <clears throat> the first 41 Psalms are basically about man's story. Uh, it's divided into five different sections. So the first one is about man and man's story and what man has done and where man has been. And that fits in with today. He starts out, Blessed is the man that walks or is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the eternal, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Alright? On those two verses, we could shut the Bible up right there and have everything basically we need. Don't walk with the hateful and the scornful, Walk with those who recognize and revere God for being God. The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. The ungodly are the preponderance of people walking the earth as always. Only a very, very, very few truly seek to walk with God. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
either eternally or now they won't stand among the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. It's going to be destroyed. So he ponders our hearts and sees which we are. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Why does the Pharisee rage against the publican and talk about himself and how wonderful he is before God? Rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying. That's what our rulers and leaders are doing right now. They're destroying Christianity as fast as they can. And there's a huge meeting in Boston this summer of Satanists coming together to promote Satanism. And the amount of people in America who believe in God in some form or another is dropping percentage-wise like a rock in a pond. Saw statistics on it. It's amazing how it's gone down. And that's what these, verse, these verses are about. He says in verse 6 of 2, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. This day have I begotten you. So this is speaking of Christ, who has his Father's uh, respect. Ask of me, and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So he's telling Christ, the wicked have to be destroyed. Be wise now, therefore you kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. You better listen because Christ is going to come and destroy you if you're disobedient. Serve the Lord with fear, verse 11, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way. Verse 3, Many there be which say of my soul there is no help for him in God. How's God going to help me? God's never done anything for me. There are a lot of people like that. They don't look to God for answers for help. That's why you and I have to come to the Passover, recognize how feeble and weak and sinful we are, and then look to Him saying there is help in God. When those Israelites heard Mitzrayim screaming and wailing and crying in the night, you think they didn't thank God that their firstborn were still alive? And when the word came, get out of here, they already had their staff in their hand and their clothes on, their shoes on, and were ready to go. Because that's what God had said. No waiting around. I'm out of here. And I'm sure they were thanking, not their lucky stars, but God in heaven that he had delivered them. Is there help for sin? Is there help for trouble? Yes, there is. He says here in verse 6, I'll not be afraid of 10,000 people that set themselves against me. Arise, O God, save me. Looking to God in faith and hope and belief. That's one reason I read this little note at the top of the announcements. Believe. With God, all things 
are possible. Will he find people who believe in him when he comes to earth, who trust him? That's what faith is. Will he find it? Not much. Just among you and a few like you. (coughs) And not every one of us will be in that attitude. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Be still. Realize you have a lot that you need to overcome and change and do according to His will. And then he says, Selah. A lot of people thought Selah meant Petra. It does not. What it means, if you look it up, look up the definitions, numbers of Strong's 5541 and 5542, what it means is stop and weigh the value. That's what the word means. So when he says, commune on your bed and think about God, he means stop and consider the values. Doesn't mean go to Petra. There's only two places that Selah had anything to do with that. There's a different word there in the Greek, I mean the Hebrew. And that that word means the rock city of Idumea. Uh, Esau dwelt in rocky places. Maybe Colorado City and Hilldale, who knows. But it means a lofty, craggy place or a fortress. <clears throat> and it's only used twice in the whole Bible. This word Selah all through the Psalms means stop, consider, think of the value. That's what meditation is. You think of the values, good and bad, of what's going on, what you're thinking, what you're doing. That's what meditation is about. Is my life in line with God's way? Uh, there's quite a bit here. I want to get on to chapter 11, pick up a couple of verses here. There's, this is all about that all the way through here. In the Lord put I my trust. How say you to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? What's the mountain going to do you? <coughs> God says they'll flee to the rocks and the rocks won't even fall on them. They're living in absolute fear. And then he says in other places, rocks will fall on them. Verse 3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? We see the foundations of God. We see the foundations of true religion destroyed in this country. What can you do? You can't do a thing about it. There's nothing we can do. You can't fix Washington You can't fix the church in Atlanta. You can't fix the Methodist church in Kansas City. You can't do anything about it. You can't do anything about the Satan worship that's going to go in Boston and is taking over this nation very, very rapidly. The movies, the TV shows are showing more and more about Satan and his demons all the time. You want to go to movies anymore? Oh, it'd be hard to find one that was worth watching. 
Some people think they need to go to the movies. Got to see the movies. What's the latest? Well, the latest is man and Satanism is what it's about. Violent sex, violent death. That's about it. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold the eyelids. Try the children of men. Now He tells us to try ourselves, test ourselves, there in 1 Corinthians 11 before Passover. And here He says, I'm trying you. I'm testing you. I'm seeing how you react under different circumstances. And I'm the one that has to decide whether to give you immortality and eternity in my kingdom or simply burn you up in the lake of fire and you're forgotten forever. One of the two is the only place you and I can wind up. But the Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked and him that loves violence his soul hates. Want to be hated by God? Be wicked, love violence. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous, uh, for the righteous Lord loves righteousness. His countenance does behold the upright. He looks to the upright. In other words, there's help for the upright and the righteous. So, before we come to Passover, we need to see the contrast between us and God, and that there is a vast contrast. We are far from being like Him. And we need to recognize that, and that we have some overcoming and growing to do. Not giving in to what we might ourselves want, but growing and overcoming what we might want if it's illegal. I'm going to go to one more and then we'll bring this to a close, and that's in Job. You're familiar with the book. I'm going to go to chapter 11 here briefly first. Uh, No, 7 it is. And begin about verse 11. Now, Job and his friends have been going back and forth and forth and back about Job and his problems and uh, if he has problems and what his problems are, uh, he's been basically destroyed and is sitting there in boils in great pain and anguish. He's lost his kids, he's lost his cattle and his camels and everything he had except a complaining wife. He still had her. Therefore I will not refrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I a sea, a whale, that you set a watch over me? When I say, my bed shall comfort me, my couch shall ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me through visions. It doesn't make any difference what I do. I find nothing but trouble so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my life. I'd rather just die and be over it. I loathe it. I loathe my life. I would not live always. Let me alone. For my days are vanity. What is man? What is man that you should magnify him 
and that you should set your heart upon him. He says, I'm here, I'm miserable, I hate life, I loathe it, I'd rather die. Why do you pay any attention to men? He says to God. You know the answer to that. You're his children, and he wants you to live forever in happiness and joy in his kingdom. That's what he wants from you. Now, what he is doing through most of the book of Job is showing Job how bad, or what he is, what he really is. Now, he was, in God's eyes, a righteous man. He was not living a life of sin. And he did not recognize something in his life that he needed to see very desperately. And he needed it very desperately because God had tried him and seen what he was. And you'll see through here that Job understood that as a man, he wasn't much. Now, he had had a pretty high opinion of himself, I think. He was a righteous man. God had blessed him with all kinds of things on this earth physically. So, he had come to understand, through all his trials and troubles, what he was. But he was missing a very, very important thing. And that is who God is. That's what he was missing. He had learned what he was. He knew that he was just a man, and that he was about to die, and that life on this earth is not the greatest thing there is. So he understood at that point what he was. And it became clearer and clearer as you go through the book that that was the case. Now let's go to the end of the book. I'll pick it up in chapter 38. God had been working towards something all the way through here. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job, you've been going through here a lot, and you've said a lot of words, and your friends have said a lot of words, but you're without knowledge. There's something you don't understand. So then he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now your loins like a man. Stand up and face some things, for I will demand of you and answer you me. <coughs> I'm about to tell you some things, and when I'm done, I don't want you sitting there on your store behind, pointing at me. I want you to stand up like a man and answer me. Oh, <laughs> we're having a test here. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if you have understanding. Uh, just where were you, Job, when the earth was created? Were you there? Did you witness it? Did you see how it was done? Where were you? Who has laid the measures thereof, if you know? Or who has stretched the line upon it? Do you know? Wherefore, upon the foundation thereof, how is it founded? How is it fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? 
Why is the earth where it is? How is it fastened in space? I don't know. You don't know either. <laughs> we still don't know how God's done all these things. Job certainly didn't. He says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth as if it issued out of the womb? Where were you? How did the, how did the ocean waves stop where they stopped? Why didn't they just keep on coming? But they stopped. When I made the cloud, the garment thereof, and thick darkness, darkness swaddling band for it, and broke up for it my decreed place, and set bars and doors, I limited the sea. And he said, Hitherto shall you come, but no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. You're going to hit the beach, and that's the end of them. Have you commanded the morning since your days, and caused the day spring to know his place? Do you regulate the up, coming up and going down of the sun? Here you are. What do you amount to, is kind of what he's saying. I'm the one that does these things. That it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it. And he goes on and on. Verse 25, Who has divided a water course for the overflowing of waters, or a way for the lightning of thunder? To cause it to rain on the earth. You had anything to do with that, Job? Where were you when I set up the clouds and the rain cycle? Duh. I don't know. I guess I wasn't around. And then he goes on and uses some more about the stars down in verse 31 and 33. What, how much do you know about the stars? Where they came from, how they're headed, and where they go, and why they go where they go. Where were you when that happened? And he goes on and on. Then in verse 39, or 40 actually, uh, verse 3, Job stood up and came up with an answer for all these questions. Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. I don't have an answer for these questions you just posed to me. I wasn't around. I'm sorry. He's beginning to get an inkling that God is a whole lot different than he is. You know, some people who think they're almost like God, I am so righteous, I serve so well, and I do good works, and I, I guess God... He, he just can't help but save me. He'll want me in his kingdom. He keeps my picture in his wallet, after all. And I'm his uh, uh, apple of his eye. There's a song about that. <clears throat> Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. He'd been trying to find answers all through this book and wasn't finding them. And he says, you've shut my mouth. <laughs> Then answered the Lord to Job out of the whirlwind and said, No, 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 don't go back and say you don't know anything. Gird up your loins now like a man. Didn't I tell you I was going to put some questions to you and I wanted you to stand up like a man? Why are you still sitting there saying, I guess I don't know? 
He wanted him to know. Will you also disannul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be righteous? Have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like Him? Deck yourself now with majesty and excellency and array yourself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of your wrath and behold everyone that is proud and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Then will I also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. If you can do these things, you can save yourself, he says. No, Job couldn't save himself. And you and I, with all our good works, cannot save ourselves. We're created under good works, but they're not going to save us. The mercy, the forgiveness, the grace of God. By grace are you saved through faith. His unmerited pardon that we didn't deserve. It's all on Him. And then He says to him about big fish in the ocean, Leviathan, uh, whoever He's referring to here, can you uh, draw out Leviathan with a hook or his tongue with a cord which you let down? Can you put a hook in his nose Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak soft words to you? Uh, can you take charge and do anything you want with what I've created? Who has withstood me, verse 11, or prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine, God says. So he's showing Job what? A contrast between who he is and what he can do compared to what God can do. That's the whole point of this whole thing with Job. And then he goes on and on, asking him if he can do this or he can do that. Verse 34, He beholds all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. Children of pride started with Satan. And people who are proud are Satan's children. And God has power over all of them. Showing him what power he had. When he laid the foundations of the earth and set the stars, set the rain cycle where the tide could go, everything God had done. And Job has to stand back and say, wow, you are something else. I'm nothing, you're something. I loathe myself. So then Job answered and said, I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withheld from you. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful me for wonderful for me which I knew not. He says, I've been talking here for all these days with my friends and I've been talking gibberish. Now you've showed me a whole new world. Here I beseech you, and I will speak. I will demand of you, and declare you unto me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, 
but now my eye sees you. Do we see God? Job had a whole different view of God after what he had been through here than he had had before. And he didn't realize it until God began to explain to him that he wasn't even around when I did what I did. And you can't even come close to it. You can't even explain it or tell me how it happened. I see you. So he could see the everlasting loving God who had created this beautiful earth and the stars and everything. As I've heard of you, now I see you. Now I grasp. I comprehend. You are incredible. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He finally got the contrast between who God is and what He was. That's why I asked you in the beginning, who are you and who is God? We need to see the contrast and how great it is and how unworthy we are, how irreverent we are. Because we diminish God in our minds. He is far greater than we could imagine. Far greater than Job could comprehend. And God gave him a lesson in contrast. And Job finally saw himself for what he was compared to God. It was the comparison that God wanted to make clear. Job was essentially a righteous man. But in that, he may have had some self-righteousness, thinking he was nearly as good as God. By the time he got down here, he says, there's no comparison whatsoever. I'm vile, I'm nothing, and you're everything. When you think about the Passover, think of yourself compared to Christ and how much he gave, what he gave for you and me. And the contrast between the value of his life and our lives is incredible. I repent in dust and ashes. And it was so that after the Eternal had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you haven't showed Job what I just showed him. You didn't get the point, and you didn't give it to him. You tried, but you fell way short. And you didn't say to me in the verse 8, the thing which is right, like my servant Job. Job finally came to see the difference between God and man. And now he reverences me. And he sees me for what I really am. So those three went and made offerings as God told them. And the Lord also accepted Job. Now notice here, verse 10, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Sons, daughters, camels, asses, and so on. On and on it went. He became a very wealthy man again. But God had to teach him something. And once he saw that, and he saw God for what he really is, as the creator and sovereign of the universe, and himself being so far beneath that, that he would look to God with absolute awe and reverence from that moment on. Then he had Job where he wanted him. 
And when you come to Passover, you need to realize how weak and small and inconsequential and about to turn back to dirt you are compared to he who is immortal, will live forever, will always have joy and peace and happiness and security and love and every good thing that we desire, we desire as humans, he has and is. And we can be like him if we will just understand the difference now in what we need to do to become like him. And as we do that, his grace and his mercy will be extended. And we can't just do it for ourselves. God turned it around for Job when he prayed for his friends. He loved them as himself, finally. And he loved God above all. And the book of Job ends there. There's an awful lot for us to learn and see and approach Passover with reverence for the Lord who gave himself for you and for us.